what is Bob Dylan, right? That's what this is all about. So welcome. From deep beneath the waves, this is episode three of a Bob Dylan primer. I'm planning about a dozen episodes for this first season that start with Dylan as a kid and finish somewhere around the album Time Out of Mind in 1997. And the goal, if there is one, is that by mashing up my own personal thoughts about Dylan with the recorded history, that we can tell a story that will appeal to Dylan newbies and also those wizened folks who love Dylan's music and feel they already know a lot about him. I'd like to alert you to the website for this series, which can be found at abobdylanprimer.com and where you'll find links to some cool content related to what you're hearing here. Once again, that's abobdylanprimer.com. Please check it out. For this episode, we're going to dig into the year of 1965, when Dylan released two monumental albums just a few months apart that pretty much sealed the deal as far as Dylan being the powerhouse poet of his generation. It was a really interesting time, where things in society and the culture seemed suddenly to start moving at warp speed, and it was hard to keep up, especially with Bob Dylan. This is a Bob Dylan Primer, Episode 3, The First Rock Star. The first two episodes of a Bob Dylan Primer took us from Dylan's birth in Minnesota to him arriving in New York City in 1961 at the age of 19, and then his comet-like appearance on the American folk music scene, and how he kind of blazed through making four pretty incredible albums in the space of about two years. And the last of those records was called Another Side of Bob Dylan, and that was pretty much the last time Dylan could be considered a folk singer, although it took folks quite a while for that to really sink in. On Halloween night, 1964, Dylan played a concert at the very prestigious Philharmonic Hall in New York City that marks a farewell to Dylan's early work and a signpost to the future. The audience that night was probably the hippest crowd that you could have packed into an auditorium at that moment, and Dylan played a mix of songs accompanied by his guitar and harmonica, some of which he'd already released and a few songs that he hadn't yet recorded. And if you listen to the concert, which was officially released 40 years later, as the Bootleg Series Volume 6. You can hear the audience eating up everything Dylan was laying down, and they're having a great time knowing that they're the hippest audience in the world at that moment. But the fact is, not a single one of them had the slightest notion about the direction Dylan was headed next, even though he had left plenty of clues in the air that night. Where Dylan was going wouldn't become evident to us mortals until the following year, 1965. 1965 was a pretty good year for pop music. As the year began, the Beatles were still dominating the charts, along with a lot of mostly teeny bopper music. There was some good stuff there, too, but it didn't have a whole lot of gravitas. My favorite record from that January was Downtown by Petula Clark, but I was just a little kid, so what did I know? Anyway, just a couple of weeks into the new year, Dylan entered the Columbia Recording Studios in New York City, And this time, he recorded for three straight nights. And in those three nights, he recorded all the songs that would make up his next album, which was called Bringing It All Back Home. Bringing It All Back Home was released on March 22, 1965. I've never thought too much about the title, but thinking about it now, it's actually kind of mysterious. Or maybe it's just another of Dylan's opposite phrases, because there was no home anywhere on the planet in 1965 that you could have been bringing this record back to. Anyway, 
you go out and buy this record and you put it on the turntable and all hell breaks loose. Dylan was still about four months away from the legendary, notorious, infamous performance at the Newport Pop and Folk Festival in July of 1965, which is the moment that history tells us Dylan went electric. A lot of ink has been spilled about that, but the fact is that Dylan was electric right here, right now on this opening track. The song, Subterranean Homesick Blues, is like pulling open a cupboard and having the whole universe clatter out onto the floor. It's a full-out assault, and it's the shot across the bow that lets everyone know that there will be no turning back, ever. At this point in time, what else was happening? Vietnam was heating up, but most people in America weren't really aware of what was going on. Civil rights was heating up, but again, most people in America, certainly most white people, not really aware of what was going on. The Watts riots happened in August 1965, still four months away. Now, the Beatles and Rolling Stones had been showing long hair, so some adventurous kids were growing their hair out, and Ken Kesey was spreading the LSD gospel through the acid tests in California, and galleries in L.A. and New York and Chicago and San Francisco were showing pop art, and Rudy Gernreich designed a topless bathing suit, and the pill was about to be introduced on a wide scale. So there was some hip stuff happening, but it wasn't happening in the middle of the United States. It wasn't happening in Tacoma, Washington, or Birmingham, Alabama, or Bozeman, Montana, or Chula Vista, California, or pretty much anywhere outside of a few pockets of enlightenment scattered here and there across the country. But all these towns had radio. They could pull in top 40 radio from somewhere. And Subterranean Homesick Blues was Dylan's first top 40 record. So you take a 16-year-old kid in Minot, North Dakota. They don't know Andy Warhol. They might have read about him in Time Magazine or something. But they hear this missive from Dylan, this manifesto, subterranean homesick blues pouring out of their transistor radio a couple times a day. This shit is working on their mind, right? You had this incredibly subversive music that was being fed directly into the ears of millions and millions of American kids. This is planting the seed, watering it and harvesting it all in the span of two minutes and 20 seconds. Cannot underestimate the impact of this record. Johnny's in the basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement, thinking about the government. It's an incredible document, and several lines from the song have become part of everyday language, at least for some people. The pump don't work because the vandals took the handle, or you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, which the radical splinter group of the Students for a Democratic Society took their name from, the weathermen. And this astonishing verse... Maggie comes fleet foot, face full of black soot, talking that the heat put, plants in the bed but, the phone's tapped anyway, Maggie says that many say, they must bust in early May. Not that far off from rap music, maybe. I don't know. Remember, this was March 1965. Let's look for a minute at some of the other songs that were on the radio at this moment in 1965. In the Billboard Top 5, the week Bringing It All Back Home came out, you had Stop in the Name of Love by The Supremes, Can't You Hear My Heartbeat by Herman's Hermits, The Birds and the Bees by Jewel Aikens, Eight Days a Week by The Beatles, and King of the Road by Roger Miller. The Beatles were happening, and the Beatles were the biggest thing ever. But this was before Rubber Soul came out, and that was really the first Beatles record where the world understood that the Beatles were making permanent music for the ages, for adults, not just what they called teeny bopper music back then. 
So at that moment in time, rock and roll was basically teeny bopper music until Dylan released Subterranean Homesick Blues. To me, it's a very clear demarcation before that record and after. And it didn't really sink in until later, maybe. But this record was a true dividing line. And no one had ever put lyrics like that into what was a pop song. And we should mark Dylan's age at this moment. He was 23 years old when this record came out. So there's that. Something about this album that always strikes me is that side one and side two are completely different. Side one, you've got Dylan rocking out and hitting you pretty hard with this full sonic assault, guitar, bass, and drums, everything. And he's almost shouting a lot of it. It was kind of wake-up call about what was coming up in the future. Still, in the middle of four jangly rock and blues numbers on side one, there are two exquisite love songs, She Belongs to Me and Love Mine is Zero No Limit. The only two love songs on the album, and to me, they're among the most wonderful evocations of the imagined perfection of a new lover. And it seems pretty clear that Dylan wrote them about his soon-to-be wife, Sarah, who he'd started dating sometime in 1964. Side two of the record is four songs that could be the most impressive four-song stretch on any rock or pop album of all time. And what would make sense is if these songs opened the record, they're slightly older songs, they're songs that had been written a little bit earlier, and they're songs that Dylan had been performing for a little while, and they're acoustic. So you would think logic would tell you that, hey, we're going to start off with these four poetic acoustic songs to kind of get you into the record, and then bam, hit you with the sonic assault of subterranean homesick blues. Dylan didn't want any part of that. He was like, look, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm going to hit these people over the head with it, and they're going to have to deal with it. And that's what he did. It's just another one of those little quirky Dylan things that makes you wonder. So you flip the record over to side two. Four songs, 25 minutes. It's a run of music that was completely unprecedented in terms of the depth of meaning that's explored and how powerful the expression is that comes through in an almost painfully direct manner. Dylan set aside his already trademark humor and irony for these songs. There's nothing really funny about side two of this record. It's haunting and beautiful and inspiring and it starts off with a song that Dylan first did in 1964 for the Another Side sessions, but decided to leave off that record. But he's recorded it again here, and that's Mr. Tambourine Man. Dylan wasn't happy with that earlier attempt, and it points to Dylan's estimation of his own tune, that he thought enough about the song to record it again. And the result is perhaps Dylan's signature song, if there can be such a thing. And the next song on side two is Gates of Eden, I think it's one of Dylan's most overlooked songs, partly because it was placed between Mr. Tambourine Man and It's Alright Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. But it's quite a fantastic journey all by itself. Some of Dylan's strongest imagery and a deep pool of ideas and perception that's worth deeply diving into. The album closes with my personal talisman Dylan song, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. It's hard to think of a better personal motto than a line from the final verse, Strike Another Match, Go Start Anew, which is exactly what Dylan was about to do on his next album. But first, he had to fly to England to fulfill his obligation to play a month's worth of concerts over there. And that tour is what groundbreaking documentary filmmaker D.A. Pennebaker captured on 16mm film for what became the movie Don't Look Back. And there are a million things about life and Bob Dylan to glean from watching that movie. But one thing that comes through loud and clear above all else is Dylan's growing frustration with being known as a folk singer and his absolute refusal to be painted with any single brush or even a whole fistful of brushes. 
At that moment in time, Dylan was more like the paint itself, pure color that could be transformed instantly into anything his mind could imagine. Dylan got back to the States in early June 1965, and two weeks later he went back into the studio to record a new album, which was going to be called Highway 61 Revisited. And it's funny, much like the earlier trip Dylan took to England, which saw him transformed from scruffy folk singer kid to sophisticated troubadour, Dylan returned from this 65 jaunt across the sea as the embodiment of what was hip. Dylan is filmed by Andy Warhol at the factory for one of Warhol's screen tests. He starts hanging out with poets like Allen Ginsberg, and he moves into the Chelsea Hotel on 23rd Street, following in the footsteps of Mark Twain, Dylan Thomas, and many other proto-hipsters. That July, two versions of Dylan's song, All I Really Want to Do, hit the Billboard charts on the same day one by the birds, and one by Sonny and Cher. But let's talk about a different song for a minute. Check this out. On June 16th, Dylan records Like a Rolling Stone. It was 6 minutes and 13 seconds long. Four days later, 96 hours later, the song is released to radio stations all across the country. I think Dylan knew he had something special and he didn't want to mess around. He wanted this song heard. This is it. This is the Big Bang. Like a Rolling Stone is arguably the greatest rock record ever made, greatest rock single of all time, and it's kind of the transition point between past and future. It's the singularity, the rabbit hole, the black hole. It's the place where you can go through galaxies or whatever possible metaphor you can think of for a radical shift in time and space. Hundreds of thousands of words have been written about Like a Rolling Stone, including an entire book devoted just to the recording sessions of the song, so there's not much I can add, except to maybe talk about the feeling that many people had hearing the record for the first time. Beyond the words, the sound of the record gave you the sensation that you understood something brand new for the very first time, and you perceived that the singer understood it too, and you also had the feeling that the people around you we're understanding this new thing for the first time as well. I don't know. I don't really know how to talk about the record. I can say it came out at a particular moment in the culture where something that was groundbreaking was also immediately accessible. It just went from radio waves flying through the air straight into your veins. Whatever had been percolating around America and the world for the past number of years suddenly exploded overnight. A few days later, Dylan clambered up onto the stage at the Newport Folk Festival wearing a black leather jacket and black Ray-Bans, backed by a fully electrified blues band. Dylan yelled, Let's go! And the band kicked into Maggie's Farm as Dylan screamed, I ain't gonna work on Maggie's Farm no more. Dylan was done with living up to anyone's expectations, possibly even his own. And that performance at Newport, known to history as the night Dylan went electric, was his way of cutting the cord of the past as he plugged into his electric future. A few days after Dylan played Newport, President Johnson announced his decision to send an additional 50,000 troops to South Vietnam while doubling the monthly draft call. Starting at that moment, 1,000 young American men were drafted each and every single day for the next several years. The war was on for real now. Dylan's new album, Highway 61 Revisited, was released on August 30, 1965. 
Every song had a full band backup, except for the last one, which was just Dylan's voice and acoustic guitar, along with a second acoustic guitar line. The song, Desolation Row, was more than 11 minutes long. It's a landmark song, no doubt, if for nothing else than its extreme length. But as I listened to the song repeatedly to prepare for this broadcast, I was struck by the strangest phenomenon. The song just flies by. And when you finish listening, there's no way that you think 11 plus minutes have just passed. I don't understand why this is, and maybe it's not that way for other people, so I'll just leave it at that. But it's a wonderful closing to another brilliant Dylan album. One week after the album was released, Columbia released a new single, a song that didn't make the album, and it's probably one of Dylan's most famous songs called Positively 4th Street, the ultimate put-down record that opens with the line, you've got a lot of nerve to say you are my friend. And it's at this moment that Bob Dylan becomes the world's first rock star. In the 1950s, you had your rock and roll idols, of course, led by Elvis Presley, You had the supreme rocker, Chuck Berry, the mind-bending Little Richard. You had heartthrobs like Ricky Nelson, people like that. And then in the early 60s, you had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and they were huge. But in 1965, people didn't really consider Paul McCartney a rock star, for example, or John Lennon a rock star. They didn't consider Mick Jagger or Keith Richard a rock star in 1965. They were members of incredibly successful popular groups. Bob Dylan, I'm going to argue, without arguing, was the first rock star. And you kind of have to think for yourself what you think being a rock star means. For me, it's this larger-than-life persona that transcends the music and is more about personality than music. And Dylan, in 1965, when Highway 61 Revisited came out, after hanging out with Andy Warhol and Allen Ginsberg, and after Newport and Like a Rolling Stone came out, Dylan was wearing shades everywhere and arriving by limo, he had transformed into something otherworldly. If you have any doubts that Dylan was the coolest thing around, just look at the cover of Highway 61 Revisited. It's a medium close-up of Dylan sitting down, wearing a blue and purple silk shirt open to reveal a white Triumph motorcycle t-shirt underneath. He's holding his Ray-Bans folded in his right hand, and his expression is pure know-it-all menace. I mean, he's no longer chubby Bobby Zimmerman from Hibbing, Minnesota. He's Bob Dylan, rock star. If Dylan had never recorded another song after 1965, he'd still be talked about in the same breath as the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix. But he recorded many more songs, including in 1966, a year to which we'll devote our entire next episode. Until then... Music for this broadcast was provided by Max Ferguson, sound designed by John Zalewski. My name is Michael Hacker. Thank you for listening, and if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced, please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A. Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to lend your support and find supporting content about Bob Dylan. Again, That's a Bob Dylan, P-R-I-M-E-R dot com. And thank you very much.